This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Approach. It's Brian Kilmeade. Thanks so much for listening, everybody. It's the Brian Kilmeade Show. We have a big hour coming your way as the President of the United States tries to convince us he knows exactly what he's doing, working across the aisle, trying to get Republicans and Democrats to work together as the debt ceiling looms. And uh, I think this president has been a major disappointment in terms of bringing us together. So we'll find out what's happening. But we have a lot going on on Capitol Hill, but beyond, too, uh, because, you know, the, the sparring that's going on with social media. And uh, we'll see what happens. I don't know. Last night, if you're a Yankee fan, you cannot be happy as they just did not show up to play, and Boston did. Everything was there except the Yankee victory. Nothing's right in the world, unless you're a Boston fan. And Tampa's better than both of them. Uh, Rich Lowry's going to be with us shortly, and Victor Davis Hanson at the bottom of the hour. He's got a great new book out. It's called The Dying Citizen, How Progressive Elites, Tribalism, and Globalization Are Destroying the Idea of America. But he ends positively, and I'll let you know. So let's get to the big three. Now with the stories you need to know, it's Brian's Big Three. Number three. This is unprecedented lack of leadership, direction, control of our border. It's a strategic failure. I can tell you this is not just a Republican issue. There are Democrats that are incensed, astounded, cannot believe Biden's absence of leadership as it comes to immigration. I think so on the border towns when it comes to cities. But I don't think it's with the senators and congressmen. Ashley Moody with us. That was her talking about what's happening at the border, coming to America by the tens of thousands. And more proof this administration does seem, does not seem to care. Twenty five Republican governors do take care and they're taking uh, they do care and they're taking action today. Number two, if this isn't a deliberate attempt to chill parents from showing up at school board meetings for their elected school boards, I don't know what is. I mean, I'm not aware of anything like this in American history. You're using the FBI to intervene in school board meetings. That's extraordinary. It is. Upset about CRT? Well, the DOJ is upset, and they're calling the FBI to get involved. Yes, with crime running rampant, the southern border being invaded, they are being directed to stop you from confronting your school board. Sick. Number one. President Biden has two bills that he's pushing. The uh, the fake infrastructure bill, which will spend $400 billion that we don't have, and the spending orgy reconciliation bill. Mice die in mousetraps because they think the cheese is free. Uh, this bill's not free. It'll cost everybody. President Biden hits the road and gets turbulence as he tries to explain the rationale behind his multi-trillion dollar one-party spending spree and vilify Republicans for standing in his way and not helping him raise the debt ceiling, which he might do use a nuclear option uh, to actually do. Uh, he's got to do it by next week or else we default on all of our money. And the bottom line is the problem with Joe Biden, he's voted three times and he said if he didn't miss a vote, it would have been four times to not raise the debt ceiling when President Bush was president. And now he looks like a guy that is vilifying the Republicans for doing the same thing, and he's got no credibility. So 
Let's take a look. The, uh, the clock is ticking on Capitol Hill for the debt ceiling, but also to get this deal done. By the end of October, he wants to have a reconciliation bill agreed on. And here's the play-by-play of what is happening behind the scenes. Essentially, according to if you want this spending spree to happen, Congresswoman Pra, uh, Pramila Jayapal was uh, with the president on a Zoom call. And he says, listen, if you want this passed, you got to be looking at one point nine to two point two trillion dollars. I'll see if I can get Joe Man- Manchin up. She came back and says, no, I want two point five to two point nine. Manchin has said, I'm saying at one point five, but I'm willing to talk about it. He declined to say whether he'd go much higher on the number. What I also want you to be aware of is the trick they're considering pulling, and that is saying, I gave in, but I kept all my programs. And you say to yourself, how'd they do that? Well, what happens is you can sunset them. You want to do school lunches. You want to do free preschool, free uh, elder care. You want to do a free community college. You just get rid of it after three years. And next thing you know, you'll have to turn around and tell politicians on both parties, do you not want to fund Preschool for children? Do you not like children? Can you see those ads? Rich Lowry's with us right now. Rich, where is this going? Do you think they're going to get a deal done and reconciliation before uh, the 31st? I don't know where they're going to make their deadline. I think they'll eventually get a deal. I think they're pretty close. I think the progressives are coming down on their number. I think it'll be somewhere between 1.5 and 2, probably closer to 1.5. But the the key question, Brian, as you're just alluding to, is what programs are in the bill? Because even if you're starting them small, even if you're sunsetting them in theory, once you get them going, they're hard to ever stop again. So what progressives will do, even if it's 1.5, is let's shove every program in there and sunset it after three years or just make it a pilot program to begin in the expectation that they never end. He's getting a total pass on a bipartisan bill that was done. He walked away from a W, and no one's talking about that. And Republicans aren't expressing outrage, the 19 especially, that voted for this. Yeah, so this is where I think Democrats, it's kind of crazy. I mean, this is a president who needs some sort of W, as you put it, somewhere. (laughs) And they they had it sitting there. They could just pass the infrastructure bill. They could have some Republican senators standing behind him in a signing ceremony. They could say, look, Joe Biden's right. He's making Washington work, and the parties are getting together again on this historic, and it would be a really big infrastructure bill, uh, bill, and then use the momentum to try, try to work reconciliation. Instead, they're in this Mexican standoff, mostly because the progressives are so unreasonable. And I just say, you know, even Joe Manchin, um, I, you know, I much prefer him to AOC, obviously. But 1.5 trillion, we don't need. We don't need that. We can't afford it. We shouldn't be spending it. No question. Here's Mitch McConnell on not understanding. He got out of the way to allow President Biden to have this win. Listen, on the reckless tax and spending bill, it's pretty clear the president has uh, picked a side. He signed up with the progressives, came up and tanked his own infrastructure bill. And as a result of that, they've obviously taken a one-month pause. Uh, So a one-month pause. By the way, Rich, he could have been doing this in the spring, through the summer. It's as if Mm -hmm. they were totally unprepared for what they promised the moderates in August. That's a vote by the 27th. And that they didn't have any come together and they couldn't persuade Manchin and Cinema uh, all last week, but they couldn't persuade them last season. And Manchin told you his threshold in August. So I'm just confused. Are they not trying? 
Well, I think, Brian, a huge element here is that they believe their own PR. And first six months of the year, is he's the new FDR. You know, it's going to be LBJ, FDR-style, historic legislation, with no one really noticing what was obvious. When you have a tie in the Senate and a five-seat majority in the House, you're not pushing, pushing huge transformative, transformative legislation. FDR had a 200-seat majority in the House when he came in, 58 senators, and then went up in the first midterm. The Republicans were down, I believe, to 89 House seats wow. in 1934 and 16 senators. So when your opposition has been vaporized, yeah, you can do whatever you want. But when it's half the country and basically controls half the Congress, no, you can't. So it's taken a while to realize, no, we're got, not getting 3.5. We don't really have leverage over Mansion and Cinema, and we're going to have to come down. And that's, that's what they're in the process of, of working through now. Do people understand the pay-fors and how they plan on getting it? how they plan on using the Treasury, the IRS, to go after people and get people who have more than $600 in the bank? Do they understand that they're putting billions into the uh, IRS? They're going to have steroids? They're going to be in every area of every country, of every city, of every household. Do, do the American people want the IRS militarized? They don't, and this is a huge a vulnerability of this bill that hasn't been focused on enough that we tend to focus on the spending because the, the numbers are so enormous, but the, the tax provisions are hugely problematic as well. And this is the one that's most easily understood and is going to be most unpopular. So there's a question of how much they're going to spend, and there's a question of how they're actually going to at least pay for some of it. And all that's fraught and all that's complicated, which is why I think you know eventually they'll get there, but it's going to be dragged out. And the, and the longer it's dragged out, the, the more the odds incre- increase. Maybe they don't get there. I want you to hear this uh, the, you remember these moments on these school boards, on these school boards across the country, when parents got an understanding of what was actually in their kids' curriculum. Cut seven. In March, my child had to watch a TED Talk in English class, not on anything related to English, but rather oppression and acknowledging privilege. Any parent with a pulse knows that this is wrong. Why has public school become so mired in extremist politics and a permissive culture that seems to celebrate the latest popular fads like gender fluidity? And we oppose your efforts to impose critical race theory an overtly racist doctrine that teaches our children to judge and categorize others based solely on the color of their skin. Their job is to teach our kids math, science, biology, literature, and that's it, not ideology. Now, this administration, this Department of Justice, has asked the FBI to look into some of these school board meetings to see if they qualify as threats of violence and terroristic threats. Uh, and they are going to start looking at these. These parents are going to be under scrutiny by the FBI. Does that sound right to you? No, it's, it's shocking and outrageous that that memo, just the sheer existence of it, is an outrage. Now, it's a little vague. You know, I, I don't think they're actually going to be, you know, have FBI agents at every school board meeting. But, you know, we all pose physical, actual physical threats against people, obviously. But where, where this memo really goes off the rails is towards the end. It just talks about, you know, intimidation, which what's the definition of intimidation? And, and when you're just yelling at someone or being very vociferous at a school board meeting? Is that intimidation? So this is just a realm the FBI shouldn't be within 100 miles of. That memo should never have been written and released. And the only reason it was, and we all know this, is because they hate, hate, hate these parents showing up at these meetings. 
and they want to send a message to them. And the Republicans, they just got to uh, sink their teeth into this this one, not let it go, push back as hard as they can, and put this top of their list for right. oversight hearings when and if they take the Congress next year. The president's approval rating when it comes to the border is just over 30 percent. He does not seem to care, nor does the Kamala Harris, who went to Palm Springs to speedwalk rather than show up and go to Panama, Colombia, Mexico, Honduras, and go to the root cause of the problem. But she won't do it. And we got 60,000 Haitians on their way here right now. Rodney Scott quit his job because he didn't want to be the Border Patrol chief anymore because nobody was listening to him and he couldn't back these policies. Listen to what he also said about the border wall, cut 20. We're paying contractors uh, for a while. It was almost $5 million a day between DOD and DHS. Just to not. To work. not build the border wall. There's wait, wait, wait. $5 million a day to not build the wall. To not build a Even wall. Even though they have all the stuff, they have... There are stacks and stacks of border wall uh, panels. There's hundreds of miles of fiber optic cabling. Uh, there's hundreds of, bo- of cameras that were being installed with that uh, that are just sitting. There's no action being taken. You, I mean, on what planet and what country is that okay? <laughs> it's, it's, it's bizarre and perverse. You know, maybe if you're a Democrat, you're not hugely enthusiastic about the wall, but who can oppose having a, a better fortified border unless you're, you're basically open borders. And, of course, that's what they are. It's been really notable, Brian. I think there was another resignation, a guy, Harold Kuko. I'm not sure how to pronounce his name. So you've had two resignations over Biden's border policy supposedly being too, too harsh from, from progressive uh, office holders. So, you know, they won't resign over Afghanistan and the disgrace there. They won't resign about leaving Americans behind, but they will resign that there are five flights or whatever it was back to Haiti, whereas thousands and thousands of those migrants in Del Rio actually got into the country. So th- this is, Biden's been in the 30s on this issue from the beginning, deserves to be even lower. Right. And his approval rating is at 42 percent. Terry McAuliffe overheard on a conference call saying, my problem is Joe Biden is extremely unpopular here in Virginia. Mm-hmm. That's a place I think he won by 19 points. Yeah. Now, that's a, that's a bellwether race, obviously. Terry McAuliffe uh, was governor once before. Um, and uh, trying again, and he's got this guy, Glenn Youngkin, pretty deft candidate, who's just hammering him, including on the schools, where McAuliffe had this gap that he actually doubled down on, where he said that parents shouldn't be involved in education, which is exactly the spirit of the, the Garland memo as well. So if McAuliffe goes down and they haven't passed the reconciliation bill um, by that point, it's uh, it's a huge blow against the reconciliation bill. I mean, you might, you might have some Democrats panicked and running, running, uh, running for their lives. Right. And inflation is is beyond anybody's spin or 30 second ad that gets to everybody when you're getting less uh, and paying more. When you go shopping, you don't need to know who's president. You know what I was paying, what I wasn't and whose policies we're now we're now living through. Rich, we're going to make sure to pick up uh, National Review, the author of The Case for Nationalism. Rich, thank you very much. Have a great day. All right. Meanwhile, when we come back, your calls one eight six six four zero eight seven six six nine. Then Victor Davis Hanson here with his brand new book, of The Deep Thinker, with some great thoughts and a positive ending. Expanding your knowledge base. It's Brian Kilmeade. 
This is Jimmy Fallon inviting you to join me for Fox Across America, where we'll discuss every single one of the Democrats' dumb ideas. Just kidding. It's only a three-hour show. Listen live at noon Eastern or get the podcast at foxacrossamerica.com. As many of you know from your own life experiences, a life in so-called blue-collar work is something to be proud of. It is very rewarding to work that has impact on your friends, your neighbors, and your family's lives. Great successes can be had in the blue-collar career. There's no degree requirement for achieving comfort, peace, and freedom. While schools cut shop classes and funnel students into colleges, there are plenty of options for hard workers who are ready to take advantage of open positions. Many young people today assume that college is the only way to achieve success in life. That is not true. Let me introduce you to Ken Rusk. Ken spent his younger years digging ditches and working in construction. He never went to college. Instead, he made goals, planned, and worked hard for 30 years. Now Ken is a successful entrepreneur with multiple businesses and revenue streams. In his national best-selling book, Blue Collar Cash, Ken shares his insights from over 30 years of working in blue-collar trades as an entrepreneur, mentor, and life coach. Now he's created a guide made specifically for you and your unique situation. This guide will give you or someone you love the tools you need to start designing the life of their dreams. You can achieve your dreams regardless of your educational background or your past. Go to KenRusk.com path to learn more. That's KenRusk.com path. A talk show that's real. This is The Brian Kilmeade Show. Every person has the right to pro-choice, and that's kind of what the debates come down to. So the fact that um, the mandates have come in by, by cities and states and then put pressure on the NBA to now, you know, players that essentially would have to sit out road games in certain cities or even home games if their city's got the mandate um, it's pretty unfair especially when you consider the um, restrictions that are on those players that were you know unvaccinated last season I mean I don't understand why they you know if those restrictions worked so well last year talking about masks not being able to leave the hotel why can't the unvaccinated players um, still have those restrictions on them it, it makes no sense 100% uh, former NBA player Andrew Bogut uh, I believe from Australia originally, uh, right, Pete? I think he's from Australia, correct? But it is. It's it's unbelievable what's happening. And now, because they play indoors, and a lot of these cities, states are mandating that you have to be vaccinated to go indoors or go to workplace. People like Kyrie Irving, uh, standout player with the New Jersey, excuse me, the Brooklyn Nets, they can't play. And very few are not vaccinated now, but they got big decisions to make. And a lot of these NBA players are siding with Republicans, not necessarily with Republicans, but with the belief that you should be making your own choice. If a team is a private business, I get it. If the union works out something where testing has to take place because, like the NFL did, you're unvaccinated, you can be unvaccinated, but you're going to go be uh, restricted in certain areas. you got to get certain tests and you risk some pay if you test positive. So... Having said that, that should be the option. It's an option here at Fox. I mean, you're not vaccinated, you tell them, and you're going to go through different protocols when it comes to tests. But I think athletes and Republicans are seeing eye to eye on this and this ham-handed ways in which Mayor de Blasio, Governor Gavin Newsom, and others are cracking down on businesses, medical professionals, and teachers. I never thought it would come to this, but this mandate mania uh, it's continuing. So now you heard what I said. I have this New York Minute now. Go online and check it out. And now the psychiatric hospitals are demanding all their workers get vaccinated by November 1st. Good luck with that. Hard to get good workers, experienced workers in psychiatric hospitals. But maybe they can do what, what Northwell did here in, in New York. They just got Filipinos and Irish. 
from other countries to work equipment. Do you feel good about going to a hospital where people are just being broken in? Maybe checking the manual in the box to understand how to work a ventilator? When we come back, Victor Davis Hansen brings this show to another level. You know, from the Hoover Institute Senior Fellow. Uh, he's the author of The Dying Citizen, How Progressive Elites, Tribalism, and Globalization is Destroying the Idea of America. But he ends on a positive thought. Since he can't get worse, it's got to get better. Brian Kilmeade Show. From the Fox News Podcasts Network, download and listen to The One with Craig Gutfeld, the co-host of The Five, like you've never heard him before. You know him, you love him, you want to be like him. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. A radio show like no other. It's Brian Kilmeade. He asked me, he said, what's the situation? And I explained exactly, uh, he, was, he had not been aware of that. He literally had not been aware of what had transpired. And I don't want to go into the details of it, but suffice it to say that, uh, that the president, uh, uh, my president, is very committed to um, uh, strengthening the relationship. So that is the former Secretary of State. Now he's Green Czar, Secretary uh, uh, John Kerry on French television telling the French that the president had no idea by buying nuclear subs, by letting Australia buy nuclear subs from us, that was even going to offend France. This is wrong on so many levels, I don't know where to start, but Victor Davis Hansen does. He's with the Hoover Institute as a senior fellow, author of The Dying Citizen, How Progressive Elites, Tribalism, and Globalization are Destroying the Idea of America. And we got the rest of the half hour with you, Victor. But first, I just wanted you to comment on this. What's the advantage of John Kerry telling the French he, the, the president is out of the loop? I think it's what John Kerry always does. It's in his self-interest. Is he's the man behind the scenes. He's the brain of the entire administration. He's underappreciated. So he's going to smooth things out. He, that doesn't mean he didn't t- tell the truth. I think he was telling the truth that Joe Biden is completely unaware of what's going on. But we didn't need to know that, and our enemies and friends didn't need to know that. But John Kerry wants everybody to know that although he doesn't have a high billet, that he's still the person that knows what's going on. So he always does that. And he was supposed to restore our foreign policy uh, prestige. Evidently, he thought it was dipping. So if you look at what happened in Afghanistan, I don't see it there. If you see the way NATO was abandoned, not even informed, I don't see it there. When you see France take back their ambassador to send a message to us that they lost $100 billion on two sub-deals, the message is certainly not there. And then when you see China acting as if they are fearless of America, couldn't be more belligerent from Alaska, from the Alaska meeting on down. I'm wondering when the prestigious park comes back. I don't know where it is. We could even add North Korea in there. But it's the pastime now of every military blog or website to game theory or speculate about an invasion of Taiwan. That wasn't true just a year ago. So people now have taken the impossible or the unimaginable and they're discussing an invasion of Taiwan as the realistic. And so that's really scary because people now are considering, these are people on the left as well, are considering what happens when U.S. loses deterrence. We've lost deterrence and we're going to have to get it back. Deterrence can be lost in a day. It takes months or years to, to recoup. Right, especially after Afghanistan. I want to talk about more of that more, but how it all plays into the upset of things we used to expect and how it plays into your book, The Dying Citizen, How Progressive Elites, Tribalism, and Globalization are Destroying the Idea of America. Uh, I guess they didn't like, I guess Americans didn't like things going well. 
now we have to attack all of our established mores and beliefs? What? How did we come from a country that is attacking itself? It's hard to know, but there were preliminary indications uh, throughout the Obama administration that we were not going to be following Martin Luther King Jr.'s uh, subscription or prescription of content of character, not the color of our skin any longer. We created a new word, diversity. We're back to tribalism. Uh, your appearance is essential, not incidental to who you are, in, even though there's no historical evidence whatsoever that that tribalism has led it to anything other than a rendezvous with something like the former Yugoslavia or Rwanda. And when, if you have to have a space, a peculiar place that's your own where your customs and traditions can be in and emphasize we have no border now. So in the book I was trying to say what makes a society that's consensual work. It's the citizen and citizenship. What makes citizenship work throughout the ages? You have to have a middle class. You have to have a border, a space that's sacred. You have to have an identification, collective identification of an idea, not your tribal or racial or ethnic affinities. And you have to have an elite that is responsible to the voters. You can't have a James Comey or John Brennan or uh, Robert Mueller doing things and not being accountable. You can't have James Comey saying he doesn't remember 245 times under oath, or James Clapper saying, I gave the least untruthful answer while under oath, or Lois Lerner, all of these things. So we've lost audit and control of our unelected. To getting away with it. And and the thing is, you can't expect, for example, defund the police. That doesn't even sound right. It almost cost them the election. Let's give criminals a chance to have no cash bail. Let, let's go around and decide that uh, the Supreme Court needs to be bigger, so let's pack the court. Uh, let's decide to get rid of the filibuster, even though it's been part of our society, uh, a part of our government, uh, for generations. So it seems like everything that you came to expect seems to be under siege. It is. And I, in the book, I have a chapter on the evolutionaries. These are people who really candidly don't believe that their arguments, this left-wing progressive agenda, appeals to 51% of the population. So they have two uh, avenues of redress. One is to change the demography and open the border and bring in millions of people, two million scheduled in the next fiscal year, who will come in on audited. And the second is, let's get rid, as you say, the 180-year filibuster, 60-year tradition of 50 states, 150 years of a nine-person Supreme Court, 233 years of an electoral college and a national uh, – in national elections that the states are responsible primarily for balloting procedures within their state conflict. Get rid of all that because it doesn't render you the agenda you want, the result you want, and that's what the left is doing. And I thought about you a lot over the last few years because you're such an esteemed historian. And when people say I want Lincoln's name off my grammar school – when, when people say that uh, we are a racist land who stole it, we are racist people that stole our land from uh, the American Indians who, uh, in turn, we, we enslaved Af- African Americans, which was the base of our democracy. And people say, give me, give me a pen. I'd like to rewrite our history book. What does Victor H- Davis Hanson think about that? Does that play into what you're saying? Yeah, it does. I, I look at who does that, who starts with this year zero idea that we come into power, we're going to erase everybody. Well, we know that the Jacobins on Robespierre did it in the Reign of Terror in the French Revolution. They started with year zero, and they created new gods. The you know They wish, worship reason. They renamed the calendar. The Bolsheviks did it. They Trotskyized anybody who they didn't like. They just took his picture and canceled him, and he disappeared. It was the stuff Orwell wrote about. So when I look at these totalitarian movements, the first thing they do is, as Orwell 
said that they erase the past during the present so they can control the future. And that's what they're trying to do. They're trying to convince young people that this country was flawed at the beginning, but they never say, well, what was going on in 1863 at Gettysburg? Why did 700,000 Americans kill each other off for the principle that slavery was evil? Why did somebody in Minnesota march all the way down to Georgia with Sherman? He'd never seen an African-American in his life for the principle that slavery was wrong. Why did 250, 300,000 Northerners, the vast majority had never seen an African-American in the Midwest, for example, and they went down and they killed fellow white Americans because they thought it was an evil thing to have slavery. And, And then people say, well, why didn't the founders? Well, when you have a revolution against England, and immediately you've got this disparate group of 13 colonies. Are you going to immediately have a civil war over the issue of slavery and destroy what little chance you have for a republic? Or are you going to compromise and think we have a rendezvous with a terrible thing that's coming? But for right now, we've got to make sure that we don't have another attack by England and let's start the country and then start the process of ending slavery. And that's what we did. And why didn't Lincoln immediately say, let's have a civil war, I've demanded, and let's have the here's my emancipation proclamation? Because if he had that, he'd have no nation. Yeah, we were think, not ready to fight that way, and that wasn't – he was trying to keep us together, not because he liked slavery, because he thought we could heal together rather than fight each other apart. And there's th- one thing to look at this. When you look at melodrama, history is melodrama rather than tragedy. You say to yourself, I in the present, with all this affluence and technology and leisure, can go back 150, 200 years, and I can say that person, this woman, uh, in a pre-industrial society with no eyeglasses, no – antibiotics, no technology, no computer. They have to meet my demands for perfection. And the problem is in a pre-industrial society, people were trying to live one more day. And it was hard to live one more day with on certain supplies of food and water. And then the second thing is, and we in 2021, Brian, are immune from that. So 50 years from now, somebody's going to say, my God, these Americans, they aborted a million babies a year that were viable out of the womb. They had 600,000 people living in their own feces and urine on the very streets of their majestic cities. They killed 7,000 African-American youth shot each other. Nobody did anything about it. So we're going to be judged more, har- more harshly by future generations than, we- than pre-industrial ones are by us because we have no excuse that we're poor or we don't have appurtenances or machines or medicines or technology. They at least have that excuse. They were so busy surviving, they didn't have a chance to meet our moral perfection. Right. Uh, I just don't ever remember in my, in my lifetime ever see a generation so judgmental on another. Instead of studying it like you do, uh, we're judging it. How dare they? How could they? Instead of what did they do? Yes. And, and, what, did, just, and what did we do, Brian? We know what uh, the people who stormed Normandy Beach did, what did we do in Afghanistan? How well did we do in Libya? If you want to compare our generation to the people who fought at Gettysburg or at the Alamo or at Okinawa, what was so great about our uh, misadventure in Libya or getting out the way we did of Afghanistan? And was New York a cleaner city uh, 20 years ago, 40 years ago than it is now? Or not. So uh, this is so self-righteous, and yet when you're self-righteous and judgmental and sanctimonious, the obvious corollary is, well, let's look at you too. And it, it doesn't work too well. It doesn't work too well. But, uh, Victor, it all plays into the book trying to destroy America and the U.S. citizen that you have. You said to me, 
the dying citizen, not dead. So not you dead. believe that things have gotten to a point that uh, that so much is upsetting that we're going to pull back from the precipice, from the cliff, and fix it. I do. I think if we had this conversation a year ago, we would not be talking about two million people coming across the border. We had a workable solution. We ended catch and release. We had the wall coming. We had coerced Mexico to stop the country being a, a transit point into the United States from Central America. We had a pro, uh, a protocol to get out of Afghanistan with dignity and safety. We were very suspicious of this new identity politics and knew where it was going to lead. We did not have this inflation. Recognize we, China as, yes, as we, the we rival enemy? Absolutely. We understood that it was not a, a, a nice neutral and that it always repaid magnanimity on our part with contempt as naivete as that's how they interpret it so we were there was a and i'm not trying to you know endorse or reject trump i'm just saying that there was a movement in the country uh, about a new agenda and then it was solving problems and we can get back there again and we wanted to detour we got this chance we've seen what the left is and they've shown themselves no different than what the jacobins were or people in the socialist movement and now we're living for a while with the consequences, but I don't think that it's beyond repair. The dying citizen name of the book, but it just goes to show that he does believe a comeback is afoot because the American people have that potential to understand what's wrong and fix it. Victor Davis Hansen's here for a little while longer, senior fellow and uh, senior fellow at the Hoover Institute. This is the Brian Kilmeade Show. Don't move. Educating, entertaining, enlightening. You're with Brian Kilmeade. From the Fox News Podcasts Network, download and listen to The Untold Story with Martha McCallum. The host of The Story on Fox News Channel sits down with major newsmakers each week to get their untold story. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. The more you listen, the more you'll know. It's Brian Kilmeade. General Milley, it's your testimony that you recommended 2,500 troops uh, approximately stay in Afghanistan. Yes, my assessment was uh, back in the fall of 20 and it remained consistent throughout that uh, we should keep a steady state of 2,500 and it could bounce up to 3,500, maybe something like that, uh, in order to move toward a negotiated gated solution. Uh, and they didn't. And he was asked a little bit later, why didn't you resign? He said, well, my father at Iwo Jima couldn't resign, so why should I resign? Because someone didn't uh, take my advice. I'm there to advise the president. Victor Davis Hanson's a military historian, senior fellow at the Hoover Institute, author of a great book called The Dying Citizen. you got to pick it up, How Progressive Elites, Tribalism, and Globalization are Destroying the Idea of America. So, Victor, while I'm watching that, I'm saying to myself, why isn't there more frustration from the general that he was ignored? And now this is on the back of his baseball card. He was chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff and one of the most humiliating things to ever happen in American history. What are his options? Well, he can resign, exactly what he was asked. He said, you gave advice, and you said it would be catastrophic if they didn't follow. If that's true, Biden, of course, denies it. And if you didn't take your advice and you think that was a catastrophic result, then you should resign. But you shouldn't then just lately tell the nation, well, it wasn't my fault because I gave this advice. Notice what he's also doing. The chairman of the Joint Chiefs, by statute, is an advisory role. So he's kind of saying, you know, I advise the president. I'm not in the chain of command. And yet when Nancy Pelosi calls him up and says, Trump's crazy, what are we going to do? Then he goes into the chain of command and tells subordinate commanders, all procedures according to uh, nuclear weapons protocol come through me. So is he in the chain of command or is he not in the chain of command? He says he wants to be transparent with the media. 
okay, is he being transparent with the media when he talks to Woodward or Costa off the record and various other muckrakers and disparages his commander? While in office. While in office, while violating Article 88 of the Uniform Code of Military Justice by comparing the President of the United States to the author of Mein Kampf, Hitler. That's a violation, and yet he's we're supposed to feel that that's some type of virtue on his part. And so he's violated so many statutes, we haven't even got into calling his Chinese counterpart. Can you imagine the chief of naval operations or General Marshall, let's say, in 1941 in, in April, calling over their counterpart Yamamoto or even to- Tojo and saying, I think FDR is not really healthy. He's not being honest about his health conditions. And, you know, he's been very tough on that oil embargo and he wants a war. So I want to warn you that we may preempt. And if we do, I will warn the Japanese Imperial Navy we're coming. That, that would be an, an unimaginable. How does that relate to – no more, do you really believe that China thought we were going to bomb them, that Trump was going to bomb them? No, I think that China thought to themselves, what a screwed-up country this is when their ch- top iconic military officer feels so weak and insecure and worried about us that he has to make a report to us. And if we had a problem, the last thing we would do is call up the United States. We would want them guessing. We would want them f- afraid. And it's not our business to assure them of anything. So the way I understand with Trump, and, and you know him, is that uh, in talking to General Jack Keane, Senator Lindsey Graham, and others, Senator Tom Cotton, they talked to him regularly. They, they did not want him talking to the Taliban. They didn't think it was a good move. They didn't think he should be uh, pulling troops out of Afghanistan. But they found he listened. They found that, you know, he said, after the election, I'll get together on this. I don't think when they started moving through these provinces— there's nothing in Donald Trump's back and uh, makeup that would allowed him to give up Kabul. He wouldn't in second. You take no, another he, step. No, he wouldn't. Are he, you kidding? He he squared the circle. Seventy-five percent of the American people thought, after 20 years, that the military and the government had not made the argument in a cost-benefit analysis that it was viable. But the military said, "We that's on the past. We got the biggest air force base in Central Asia with a minimum of 3,500 troops. We can control Kabul." This is not, and he listened to them, and you're right. And it was a viable way. If you wanted to get out over five or six years, it was. We had eighty-five billion dollars of training and weaponry invested in that country. We put three hundred million in the base, a billion in the embassy. So he was never. He was a real estate guy. He was never going to give that up to the Taliban. So it's it's absurd. We gave up. The, whatever the military says that that's not the true cost because of training and depreciation, but. They usually factor training into a weapon. So $80 billion. We, we could have bought 900 F-35s, Brian, 900. Right. We could have bought six more of those big Gerald Ford aircraft carriers. We could have given Israel military help for 50 years for wow. that price. Victor, congratulations on the book. It's excellent. The Dying Citizen. Pick it up. How progressives, elites, tribalism, globalizations are destroying the idea of America. Victor Davis Hanson, thanks so much. Thank you for having me. Get this and all your favorite Fox News podcasts ad-free on Apple Podcasts with Fox News Podcasts Plus. Just go to foxnewspodcasts.com for all the details. Live from the Fox News radio studios in New York City, fresh off the set of Fox & Friends, it's America's receptive voice, Brian Kilmeade. Thanks so much for being here, everybody. It's the Brian Kilmeade Show, one 408 And by the way, we're coming to you from New York, but heard around the country, heard around the world. This hour, great roster of guests. Uh, we're going to be joined by uh, Senator Marsha Blackburn, and uh, we're also going to be talked by, uh, joined by 
Dion Buyout. He's the author of Mars Place, The Men from the Ice House 4. He is uh, he's a very creative guy. He also works here at Fox. He's going to be joining us, too. Uh, and J.D. Vance is standing by. He wants to be the next senator from Ohio and replace Rob Portman. So let's get to the big three. Now with the stories you need to know, it's Brian's Big Three. Number three. This is unprecedented lack of leadership, direction, control of our border. It's a strategic failure. I can tell you this is not just a Republican issue. There are Democrats that are incensed, astounded, cannot believe Biden's absence of leadership as it comes to immigration. Yep, that's uh, Ashley Moody from Fox News at Night talking about what's happening at our border. Coming to America by the tens of thousands. Yes, Haitians are now on way. Updates said as many as 60,000. And there's more proof the administration does not seem to care. 25 Republican governors do care and taking action today. We'll explain. Number two. If this isn't a deliberate attempt to chill parents from showing up at school board meetings for their elected school boards, I don't know what is. I mean, I'm not aware of anything like this in American history. You're using the FBI to intervene in school board meetings. That's extraordinary. Upset about CRT? Well, the DOJ is upset with you and calling for the FBI to get involved. Yes, with crime running rampant, the southern border being invaded, they are being directed to stop you from confronting your school board. Unbelievable. Number one. President Biden has two bills that he's pushing. The uh, the fake infrastructure bill, which will spend $400 billion that we don't have, and the spending orgy reconciliation bill. Mice die in mouse traps because they think the cheese is free. Uh, this bill's not free. It'll cost everybody. Yeah, Biden hits the road and gets turbulence as he tries to explain the rationale behind his multi-trillion dollar one-party spending spree and vilify Republicans for standing in his way. And may not be helping him raise the debt ceiling. Unbelievable. With me right now, J.D. Vance, author of Hillbilly Elegy. J.D., put in perspective from the outsider perspective, and I know you want to be the insider, what you thought of the proceedings totally generated by the Democrats over the weekend. What's your takeaway from the the left wing holding uh, uh, winning over the president of the United States and put kicking the moderates and the president kicking the moderates to the curb? Well, I think it suggests the Democrats have just become a far left-wing party. And so you've got a lot of their, their membership that are trying to you know, effectively represent what has become an incredibly left-wing party. And unfortunately for us, it means they're pushing $5 trillion plus of spending. But if you, if you really think about it, it doesn't solve any real problem that we have. If you think about the big economic problems that we have right now, you know, small businesses unable to find workers. We still have an over-reliance on Chinese supply and manufacturing. We can't get critical goods in our own country, and this is going to be a big problem as we approach Christmas. Skyrocketing inflation, which is, of course, hitting people, especially seniors who live on a fixed income. Like, it doesn't solve any of those problems. In fact, it throws gasoline on the fire and makes a lot of those problems worse. I just don't know what the Democrats think they're doing other than kowtowing to the left wing of the party, which is, which is pretty obvious. Yeah, and what we have is a bunch of ships that can't get offloaded, and we have a southern border that can't get under control. Listen to this. As a money guy that, with an Ivy League degree who also served in our military, so we can go a bunch of different directions with you, listen to what we're hearing from uh, the guy who was once in charge of the Border Patrol, Rodney Scott. You know, the President of the United States finally found a way, even though he had to repurpose defense money, to build the wall with high tech. Listen to what's happening right now. Uh, with the wall at the border, um, that is number 20. We're paying contractors 
uh, for a while. It was almost $5 million a day between DOD and DHS. To not? To work. not build the border wall. There's so wait, wait, wait. $5 million a day to not build the wall? To not build a Even wall. Even though they have all the stuff, they have... There are stacks and stacks of border wall uh, panels. There's hundreds of miles of fiber optic cabling. Uh, there's hundreds of, bo- of cameras that were being installed with that uh, that are just sitting. The, it, there's no action being taken. It's everything that's wrong with Washington. We're paying not to build something. Contractors are cashing checks that we wrote, and they're not doing anything, and that's fine with the president. While the border leaks like it is. It's absolutely crazy. I mean, like, like you said, this is not a problem of not having the resources. It's a problem of pure political willpower. And it would be one thing if the, if the border wasn't thrown open yeah. for drug traffickers, for sex traffickers. Thanks to what's happened in Afghanistan, I'm sure for terrorists going to be coming across that southern border. And we're not doing anything about it. Look, I don't use this word lightly, Brian, but I think this is treasonous. One of the most critical functions and duties of a president of the United States is to protect his own people. You cannot protect your own people when you have Hundreds of thousands of people unchecked, uncontrolled, coming across the southern border every month. This is a disaster. And unfortunately, unlike a lot of disasters that happen politically that, you know, they they cause some problems and they go away after a couple of years. This is the sort of thing that could transform our country in a negative direction for 10, 20 years from now. And it it is. I mean, you have 1.5 to 1.7 million. You got 60,000 Haitians on the march. We're expecting 400,000 next month. In October, and they still might get rid of Title 42, which allows us to send out single males because of the pandemic. And who pays for this, Brian? Who pays for the public services, for the hospital services, for the education? The American taxpayer at a time when the American taxpayer is already being slammed by the policies of the Biden administration. I mean, one of the most heartbreaking stories that I consistently hear in Ohio is grandparents who have have taken care of grandkids. And, you know, I know this story very well. I was raised by my grandmother. Uh, Grandparents who have taken care of grandkids because of the heroin epidemic, because, you know, the mom or the dad died of a heroin overdose. That problem is made worse by the southern border policies because you've got more drugs coming in. But then you've also got these grandparents who can't get their kids a visit at the hospital or at the doctor because the hospitals are overrun because we've got a ton of desperate people we're letting in. It's like the Biden administration is kicking people in both the front and the back. They're making it harder for people to live a good life. And then when they when they deal with the consequences, you know, orphan grandchildren, they're making it harder to take care of those grandkids. It is a disaster all around. And again, this is the sort of problem where we're going to be dealing with it 15 years from now. We're still going to be dealing with the consequences of the people that we're letting in unchecked and uncontrolled. You know, it's so interesting. You know, Joe Biden won by not he didn't campaign at all, said he didn't have to. And he didn't. He's used he used the pandemic. So he didn't do anything. But yesterday he went to Michigan and he was greeted by Trump supporters and he was greeted by phrases. Build back broke. Go home. Sleepy Joe. No Biden. And he said it energized him. But it just reminded me what a pass he got to get to the White House. He literally read the teleprompter for six months and had no real competition for a primary. You don't have that luxury. But, man, he's getting a dose of reality. His approval's now at 42 percent. Yeah, that's that's exactly right. It's a great point. You know, I remember when he would call a lid, stop doing any activities at 9 o'clock in the morning. And unfortunately for our country, you can't govern like that. You can't wake up at 730, do one thing, and then call it it off the rest of the day. 
we need a president with energy. I mean, I, I, I know, you know, President Trump obviously um, did a very good job, but aside from the actual policies, he was just energetic, right? He actually had the oh, capacity yeah. to wake up in the morning and do the job. And that's maybe what I miss most of all in the era of Joe Biden is you've got this guy who's clearly overwhelmed. Who knows who's really controlling the ship here, whether it's the chief of staff or the vice president or, you know, whether it's, it's the president on good days. But at, at the end of the day, this guy has not really earned the title of president of the United States because of exactly what you said. And he's, he's clearly unable to do the job successfully. I mean, this is this is crazy. We're not even a year in. Brian, we're not even a year in, and we've got three or four simultaneous intersecting disasters. And you, I would say, self-inflicted. So here's what you not only have a compliant press who is quickly to get away from the border, quick not to talk about Afghanistan, quick not to talk about the disaster this weekend. But when it comes to people that work for him and somehow are gotten a total pass is Anthony Fauci. Remember, the Black Lives Matter oh, protesters, God. that doesn't spread the virus, even though we had no vaccine at the time. And then when asked, he's telling everybody in schools, you better get vaccinated. Don't go to college football games. But when you asked about this, this is what he said. Are immigrants a major reason why COVID-19 is spreading in the U.S.? No, absolutely not, Dan. I mean, if you just look at the data and look at the people who've gotten infected, look at the people who are in the hospital, Look at the people who've died. This is not driven by immigrants. This is the problem within our country. So, Mr. Hey, Dr. Fauci, if 1.9 million illegals storm our border with no medical background, and many of which, 20% of which are known to be sick, and most of which turned out a free vaccine, I don't know. What do you think? Uh, you're not a doctor, J.D. Vance, but don't you think any logical person would say, of course, this is a problem. But this guy plays politics, even with the med, the medical profession, even as Joe Biden's back. Now, I'm not a doctor, but I do have common sense. And how does Dr. Fauci know if 1.9 million immigrants are bringing in COVID? He can't possibly have control over that many people. We're not testing those people. We have no idea where those people are going. It's ridiculous for him to say something when he can't possibly know what effect those immigrants are having uh, on, on, on the pandemic. And, of course, we know that when you have people coming in, many of whom are testing positive, many of whom are going across the country, we don't know how many of them are spreading COVID, but we know it's at least a few. And think about this. American citizens right now, they're sending their kids to schools with masks. My four-year-old just started school a few weeks ago. Uh, they're unable to move around some, in some places of the country, even though they have citizenship in our country. And yet you have more walking around liberty as an illegal immigrant in this country right. than you do as an American citizen. I just wish Dr. Fauci would shut up, leave the, the, the governance of this pandemic to somebody who has more public trust and more con public confidence. I mean, after 18 months, I can't believe we still let this guy do what he's doing. He has no faith. He has no public confidence. We need to move on. I know, but believe it or not, some people do feel exact opposite of us about him. Meanwhile, the other big story that you tweeted about is CRT. Now it looks as though the DOJ has been has been asked by the uh, by the Board of Education Union to please look at some of these parents and judge them, uh, get the FBI involved, and judge them possibly as terrorists. Listen to this exchange when the memo was written and became public with Josh Hawley and the Deputy Attorney General. Cut eight. Is parents waiting sometimes for hours to speak at a local school board meeting to express concerns about critical race theory 
or the masking of their students, particularly young children, is that in and of itself, is, is that harassment and intimidation? Spirited debate is welcome, is a hallmark of this country. Um, it's something we all should engage in. And no, I don't think so, Ms. Monica. With all due respect, it didn't make it quite clear. It doesn't define those terms, nor does it define harassment or intimidation. If this isn't a deliberate attempt to chill parents from showing up at school board meetings for their elected school boards, I don't know what is. I mean, So, and that went on. Uh, you feel equally outraged. You tweeted out, after protesting CRT, these parents should be put on, put on BLM shirts, shout no justice, no peace, and then throw Molotov cocktails at the school board members. Then our attorney general will praise them for the courage, and the Ford Foundation will shower them with money. You're not wrong. <laughs> no, absolutely. Look, we saw people destroying our cities last summer, rioting, looting, burning down small businesses, and the, the attorney general of the United States could not lift a finger about what was going on. The Department of Justice, the FBI, was letting this stuff happen. And I was unhappy about that then. Of course, it was Bill Barr, who was the attorney general at the time. I'm not happy about now American citizens who are just participating in our democracy, who are letting their school boards know how they feel about critical race theory, are basically being branded domestic terrorists. This is totally unacceptable. I mean, look, we're treating people who are breaking the law in this country more favorably than American parents who just want their kids to not learn that this is an evil country. They want to learn a positive and honest assessment and view of American history. Uh, this is, you know, I, you know, Josh Hawley's endorsed my campaign, and I'm glad to have him on the team, especially after that exchange, because this really is, I think, unprecedented in American history. We're treating concerned American parents like enemies of the state in their own country. This is incredibly dark. And I know a lot of Republicans even thought that Merrick Garland, the attorney general, would be this reasonable liberal. At the end of the day, it looks like he is, he is the worst and most aggressive and most unfair attorney general that we've maybe had in American history. I can't argue. If people want to support your Senate run, where do they go, J.D.? They can go find out more, jdvance.com. They can volunteer. They can support us financially. We need all the help we can get and appreciate you giving me a platform. You got it. Uh, Ohio couldn't be a more valuable state, and that Senate seat extremely valuable. If the Republicans are to take it back, they have to hold it. Uh, J.D. Vance, thank you. Thanks, Brian. 1-866-408-7669. It does sound like he had an animal there who was in distress, I'm pretty sure. I will get to the bottom of that. I'm going to put David Lee Miller on that story. He's an investigative reporter. And then we'll, we'll talk to Senator Marsha Blackburn. You're listening to The Brian Kilmeade Show. Newsmakers and newsbreakers. Hear it first, only on The Brian Kilmeade Show. New from the Fox News Podcasts Network. My name is Kennedy, and welcome to my podcast, which will, I humbly say, single-handedly save the world. You're welcome. It's Kennedy Saves the World. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. If you're interested in it, Brian's talking about it. You're with Brian Kilmeade. No acts of violence or threats should ever be tolerated, and I believe local law enforcement has been quick to respond, and I believe in their ability to do so. But this uh, this act by the National School Board Association, which is a taxpayer-funded lobbying group, to go to this end, to me, is, again, chilling effect and intended to, to silence and intimidate parents because who have a different point of view. It is. Uh, there's no question, and they can't handle it, and they're losing the dialogue. And as long as you keep your temper, there should be no problem. However, if you bang the lectern, if you raise your voice, sometimes people are not used to speaking, get too emotional. Excuse me, Mr. Johnson, can you come with me, please? 
We're, we saw you last night. We think you're out of control. One of the board members feels threatened. We're going to have to put you in jail. Lizette, you're listening online in New York. Hey, Lizette. Hey, Brian. It's a pleasure talking to you, and thank you for, for informing me about so many things. Yeah. But I wanted to make a comment just about the um, that trillion-dollar budget bill. Yep. And I think the Republicans need to really step up their game. I think they need to explain to the American people, not just say socialism, yeah. but say, this is how it affects you. You have higher gas prices. Look at the food. Look at the empty shelves in the supermarket. All of this stuff is representative of what's coming down the pike, rather than just saying socialism, because I really think people don't understand what that means, unfortunately. And I think maybe the RNC should throw out commercials, because they're certainly not going to go on the talk shows and get a reception. They'll be talked over. They'll, they'll be cut off. So I think maybe that's one of the ways they should approach educating the public about what is in those Socialism bills. too broad. Go in there and just say, I just want you to know, if you have more than $600 in the bank, the IRS is going to be breathing down your neck. And if you thought the IRS was belligerent on your tax form now, what if we give them $75 billion? What if we told you uh, your return on your investment is now going to be double uh, when it comes to capital gains? Whatever you're paying, whatever you have to pay in taxes when you do cash out, uh, whether it's for college or a house or your retirement, it's going to be double. Are you okay with that? Are you okay with a lot of these jobs going overseas because the corporate tax rate is going to force manufacturing away again? Uh, so these are just some of the things that are going to be coming down the pike. Great point. Socialism too broad and it's lazy. Hey, go to BrianKillMe.com. Find out about the President of Freedom Fighter Tour. That has me going to Orlando, Jacksonville, Charleston, West Virginia, as well as Clearwater, Florida. See me live on stage. BrianKillMe.com. Jason in the House, the Jason Chaffetz Podcast. Dive deeper than the headlines and the party lines as I take on American life, politics, and entertainment. Subscribe now on foxnewspodcast.com or wherever you download podcasts. Radio that makes you think. This is the Brian Kilmeade Show. But I'm here today because I believe Facebook's products harm children, stoke division, and weaken our democracy. The company's leadership knows how to make Facebook and Instagram safer, but won't make the necessary changes because they have put their astronomical profits before people. And that is the whistleblower speaking before Congress about uh, Facebook. Uh, she left in the spring, left a, lot, a whole lot of paperwork to show that they were more into, and to be simple, it gets very nuanced, but they were more into profits than they were for the people and, and helping divide the country and also an intelligence risk. Uh, with me right now is Senator Marsha Blackburn. That concerns her. She's on the Judiciary Committee, Armed Services Committee. Uh, Senator, welcome back. What's your takeaway from the Facebook hearing? Because I worry about this whistleblower. She's a left winger. She's a big supporter of Democratic causes. Senator Blumenthal and her seem to be on another level of cooperation. And I just maybe I'm cynical, but I just see something that's not bipartisan. Did you pick that up or not yet? Well, Brian. Getting a whistleblower out of Facebook, you know there's somebody who is going to come from the left. Gotcha. But the documents that she brought out stand on their own. And getting these documents has been encouraging. As you know, conservatives, and I've kind of led this push for accountability and transparency and reining in big tech. 
not reigning in people, but reigning in big tech. And I've really led that for about a decade as we've worked to get some guidelines and guardrails on privacy, data security, and of course, dealing with Section 230 and censorship. And what we see in the documents, it really corroborates the information and affirms the anecdotal information we've been getting for years from teachers and principals and child psychologists about what they're doing to children, about what we were hearing about invasions of privacy and data mining, what people were witnessing when it came to censorship, preferencing. Of course, we found out about the Facebook whitelisting program and the cross-check program where they elevate certain people and diminish other people. So the documents have been very helpful, and keep in mind, our goal is to rein in big tech. Okay, here's more from Francis Hogan, Cut 22, on Facebook's intentions. I don't think Facebook ever set out to intentionally promote divisive, extreme, polarizing content. I do think, though, that, that they are aware of the side effects of the choices they have made around amplification, and they know that algorithmic-based ranking, so engagement-based ranking, keeps you on their sites longer. You have, long, you have longer sessions, you show up more often, and that makes them more money. Do you have a problem with that? And, you know, what Senator Blumenthal and I were looking at as we got into this hearing, and I had a good bit of my focus there, is how you have these cartels, uh, these drug cartels, sex trafficking, human trafficking cartels that are using Facebook. And this, they're using it. You know, we've got people that have come across that southern border from 150 different countries this year. Well, where have these cartels reached out? Uh, how do people find out about this? Many times it is off of Facebook. And bear in mind, Facebook has 90% of their usership in countries other than the U.S. So shutting this down is an action that we are going to want to take. I'm certain the Federal Trade Commission, the FTC, which is our online privacy regulator, is going to look at this. Other countries are going to look at this. And I have to tell you, Brian, I really appreciate it that Senator Sullivan brought up the national security issues that we have with how social media gets used by some of these adversarial organizations that are are certainly not friendly to Iran. us. He brought up Iran. And, she brought up Iran. Yes. And you know the 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 fact that Facebook will allow countries like that to push forward some of their rhetoric that is going uh, to spur terrorist or, or um, radical type activities. So um, we even yesterday got In fact, Senator, if you don't mind, can I, can I let everybody hear, because they might have missed last yesterday afternoon, here sure. is Senator Sullivan yeah. getting, uh, getting into it with Francis Hogan, Cut 26. We also saw um, active participation of, uh, say, the Iran government doing espionage on other um, state actors. 
Um, so this is definitely a thing that is happening, and I believe Facebook's consistent understaffing of the counter-espionage, information operations, and counter-terrorism teams is a national security issue, and I'm speaking to other parts of Congress about that. So you are saying, in essence, that the, the, the platform, whether Facebook knows it or not, is being utilized by some of our adversaries in a way that helps yeah. push and promote their interests at the expense of America's? Yes, Facebook's so very aware that this is happening on the platform. So have you had a chance to ask Mark Zuckerberg similar questions, and did you get different answers? We have gotten very evasive answers from Mark Zuckerberg. And, of course, he was in front of us when I was in the House in 2018. And, Brian, you know what? What he has tried to do is push off any type of transparency or any type light touch regulation that conservatives have tried to push forward with privacy, data security, Section 230 reforms. He didn't want anybody to be looking at what he was doing because Mark Zuckerberg feels like he is the master of the universe, and he can have control over what you see, say, think, and hear, as long as he is running his own show. Now, with these documents that we mentioned uh, that were brought forward, these documents stand on their own, and it will be interesting to see what other committees in Congress do with this information. It will be interesting to see what the SEC does with this as far as looking at elements of fraud or, or activity that is questionable. Of course, at Senate Commerce and at our subcommittee on consumer protection and data security, we're going to look at this. We will have a hearing that deals with these national security issues. And even though yesterday's hearing was on privacy, I was appreciative of Senator Sullivan kind of going outside of that bound and raising this issue in yesterday's hearing. Uh, Mark Zuckerberg came back and said, at the heart of these accusations, the idea that we prioritize profit over safety. That's not true. For example, one move that has been called into question is when we introduced meaningful social interactions change to newsfeed. The decision, this change showed fewer viral videos and more content from friends and family, which we did nothing, did knowing it would mean people spent less on Facebook. But the research suggests it was the right thing for people's well-being. Is that something a company focused on profits or people would do? And he went on. So, yeah, yeah, so when he went on, too, I I just get to the back of my mind, too. I I would love for you guys to be working on the same page. But I'm looking at her background. And this she is a far left Democrat with a history of raising issues from purported bias while while being at uh, the while about purported bias while at previous employers, the Daily Wire review found she's working with Democratic operatives to roll out her complaint uh, that got her ready. She also is working with a lawyer that uh, handled the the anonymous Ukraine whistleblower allegations against President Trump that resulted in his impeachment. And we know that Facebook set up that organization that raised $350 million for Democrats last way. Does that give you pause? Uh, Anything that Facebook does gives me pause. And we know that Mark Zuckerberg is going to try to completely reframe this argument. What we do know is that the documents stand on their own that shows Facebook 
has had this research, that they have had this awareness. We now see that they were fully aware uh, that they were in violation of the Children's uh, private, Online Privacy and Protection Act, that they have been data mining children that even as young as eight years old, we know that they are outside the bounds when it comes to content moderation, to preferencing, uh, to privacy invasions, to manipulating their algorithms. We know that they are fully aware that they have allowed adversarial uh, countries, organizations, cartels, drug traffickers to use this site. And for that, we are going to be able to hold them to account. Good. Do you, are you for, on the surface, from what you know, breaking them up or reining them in? What we have to do is rein them in. The first thing, as I've said for several years now, the very first thing we have to do is address online privacy so that you, the online consumer, control your virtual you, that you're in charge of your information. And you know, the good thing, Brian, is that consumers are demanding this. I think this is why the Democrats are trying to jump out in front of the issue, is because conservatives are the ones that have brought this issue forward and have said, do something about this. It's security moms that have gotten sick of seeing their kids data mined. And they're aware of it now because these children have been doing school at home during COVID. And they're saying, gotcha. address this issue. Uh, got it. Uh, Senator Marshall Blackburn, great work. You're always so well prepared for these uh, hearings. And I, I know people appreciate it, especially in Tennessee where you represent. Uh, Senator Marshall Blackburn, thanks so much. Thanks. All right. When we come back, the author of a book you have not heard of, uh, perhaps, but you're going to love this story. And he's played such a valuable role, role at Fox. He's come out uh, with a thriller. Uh, Dion uh, Baia will be with us next. This is The Brian Kilmeade Show. Diving deep into today's top stories, it's Brian Kilmeade. From the Fox News Podcasts Network. I'm Ben Domenech, publisher of The Federalist, and I'm inviting you to join a new conversation with the smartest thinkers out there about the country and where we're going. Subscribe to the Ben Domenech Podcast. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. Breaking news, unique opinions. Hear it all on The Brian Kilmeade Show. So Dion Bai is the author of a brand new book. It's called Morris Place, The Men from Ice House 4. You've probably seen him on camera a lot with Neil Cabuto. You've seen him with, uh, I guess, first in Red Eye, correct? Yeah, yeah. Red Eye Overnight as an outstanding floor manager. But the other thing that you do, Dion, is you're also an actor. Correct. Right? Yeah. So you do it all. You can give cues and take cues. Yeah, yeah. It's my side hustle. My day job here as an audio guy. I mic all you guys up and the guests when they come into the studio. And then by night, my side thing is I act. I, um, I'm a big film guy. And uh, I wrote a couple screenplays, which then I turned into books to try to get them out there. To try yeah, the to get other way. Made. It's usually the other way around, right? Exactly. Usually like Quentin Tarantino, you write the movie, you do the movie, then you make a novelization. I went the other way. I made the script. No one wanted to look at it. It was kind of hard in this day and age to get them to Hollywood. So then I turned it around and I said, you know what? I'll turn them in the books. That was the great John Gibson gave me that idea. Turn okay. them in the books, get them out there, and see if we can, you know. What was the first them. book? First book was called Blood in the Streets in 2018, and that's basically like my love letter to the uh, gritty cr- uh, cop films of the 70s, like uh, Dirty Harry, Bullet, The French Connection, right. which has the 50th anniversary this week, Kojak, and it takes place up in New Haven, and it's also historical fiction set in a real context 
right. and you have the story. And it kind of is very apropos nowadays because of what's going on with the police and the tension everything has. And you realize that history is very cyclical and stuff that was happening in the 60s right. and 70s are starting to happen today in this day and age. Do you think that's a good name for a kid's book? Uh, Blood in the Streets? No, no, no. It, it's it's not a, a, a good kid's You're not book pro name. That. No, no. It's, it's, it's a Doors reference because Jim Morrison was arrested up in New Haven uh, oh, okay. in a concert. And in the book, he's in the book, you know, because that was one of the events that happened up there, very iconic. And the premise of this book is? Uh, this one, uh, Morris P.I., it's uh, basically a, a love letter to the, all those great uh, action detective movies we all grew up watching as kids, you know, and this book is basically a takes place in the 40s and it's a private detective up in Harlem who uh, stumbles across this fantastical plot that the Nazis have of trying to get their loot from Europe to South America by way of the United States. And it's something where uh, it's a it's a serious uh, look at that kind of it's weird because nowadays you, you look at like the Indiana Jones movies and all those movies where they satirize people like the Nazis. And in this day and age, you know, you can't really do that anymore. You know, you have to realize how uh, horrible and atrocious those kind of people were. Someone should tell Mel Brooks that. Exactly. Yeah. Well, you, well, Spielberg had a great anecdote when he did the Indiana Jones movies. You know, they, he, they make fun of the Nazis and that. Then he did Schindler's List and he realized after Schindler's List, you can't satirize them anymore. They're so horrible. So in this day and age, we have a very educated audience where audiences are know the tricks of making a movie, writing a story. So you have to still get them involved and interested. So what I try to do is base it in a historical fiction so that you have these horrible real-life monsters and then you have your story interwoven in it. And it takes the audience on a journey. So if you have one foot in reality and the other foot in uh, fiction or sci-fi or whatever it is, horror, you know, maybe the audience will come along for that ride, you know, and be able to enjoy the, the story you're putting out there. Understood. So now you have the script for this? Oh, yeah, that's already done. Yeah, right. they were done first. You know. Got it. So yeah. the other thing you're doing is uh, you're in the John Schneider uh, sequels to Cannibal Run. Yeah, well, John Schneider did a uh, homage, his love letter to Smokey and the Bandit, which we came oh. out last year called Stand On It, and it had Tyrus in it. Tyrus played the Jackie Gleason character. John Schneider played the Burt Reynolds. He starred, he produced, he wrote it, and he directed it. So he played the Burt Reynolds character. And then I played the idiot son. Jackie Gleason, Tyrus's sheriff's son in that stand on it. And then we just shot a sequel, which is kind of a homage to Cannonball Run called Poker Run, which should be out by the end of the year, which is also us reprising minutes after. It's one of those sequels that take place seconds after. Tomorrow is officially 25 years of Fox News. How yeah. long have you been here? I've been here 20, going so, on 20. So can you describe for people on the outside, being that you've done everything here, uh, you also do commentary pretty regularly with Neil Cavuto, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah. At the 4 o'clock show. Yeah, his, your business. world. Yeah, now you right. demand it, guy. If you don't get Fox business, you should demand it yeah, for years. Uh, that was, uh, that was a, I can make myself look like an idiot very easily. Uh, I, you know what? I know. Yeah, exactly. Uh, so, exactly. But, uh, but Dion, what do people tell you when they talk about how this place changed from the inside? They, they know it's right from the television. What about from the inside? How has it changed? Um, it's, it's, it's amazing how far we've grown and how, how, how vast this place was. Because when I started, we only had three studios. Uh, and we thought that was big at the time. And now, I don't know, we, ha- we have seven, eight, maybe ten studios and all this programming. And there's so many people. And we're uh, reaching so many markets. And right. so we have Fox Nation. You have radio. You have digital. You have Fox News, Fox Business. And us, the tech guys, we're kind of like the day laborers, the people who put the shows on and make them happen and go to places and put them together. So uh, the technology's increased. The, 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 uh, the viewership has right. increased. 
And what about the two moments, two or three moments that stand out from you from your perspective? It doesn't necessarily have to be the biggest news moments uh, unless it coincides. Well, for me, you know, always the big election night stuff. You know, I, I usually do the audio, mic the guests up and you guys up for the election night stuff. So and then also debates. I was there for Megyn Kelly's first debate in Cleveland with Trump that time and, and uh, the other it, you know, just seeing all the people through the years come in, come through here, right. meeting all these people, you know, fly on the wall for all this kind of stuff, hanging it, out with Hannity. It helps with the Kabuto. books. It helps with the scripts. Yeah, well, I mean, that's a that's a crazy tell-all. Yeah, I just try to keep it professional and, you know, be as nice as I can. Right, yeah. and, and it's not easy for you to be nice. No, it's not easy at it's all for a, me to it's be a nice. Total, but you're yeah. an actor. I'm sitting there grinding, so I always have a smile on my face. Right. I'm smiling <laughs> on the outside. You know? uh, Dan Baya, uh, the name of the book is Mars Place. The Morris men, P.I. Uh, the Morris P.I., excuse Sorry. me. The men from Ice House 4, where do you get it? Uh, you can get it on Barnes & Noble. You can get it at Amazon. Any place books are sold. Paperback, audiobook, and ebook. All right. Thanks so much. Congratulations, Thank you. Dion. Thank you for having me on. Uh, no problem. Keep it here. You're listening to The Brian Kilmeade Show. Don't move. Nation presents podcasts, Women of the Bible Speak. I'm Shannon Bream, host of Fox News at Night and author of the new book, Women of the Bible Speak, the wisdom of 16 women and their lessons for today. Subscribe now on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, foxnewspodcast.com, or wherever you download your podcasts. Live from the Fox News Radio Studios in New York City, fresh off the set of Fox and Friends, it's America's receptive voice. Brian Kilmeade. Thanks so much for listening, everybody. It's Brian Kilmeade. It's coming to you from New York, heard around the country, heard around the world. This is Hispanic uh, Week in America, and one of the most successful uh, in this country became governor of New Mexico and still a force in the Republican Party. Uh, governor Susana Martinez will be joining us shortly, 31st governor of New Mexico. And also, they're dealing with a major border issue, but they don't talk about it. In my humble opinion, it's because of Democrats running the state. Martha McCallum, uh, right after that, host of The Story, uh, and she's going to be hosting the show, her show, as you know, at 3 o'clock till 4 o'clock today. So before we get to the governor, let's get to the big three. Now with the stories you need to know, it's Brian's Big Three. Number three. This is unprecedented lack of leadership, direction, control of our border. It's a strategic failure. I can tell you this is not just a Republican issue. There are Democrats that are incensed, astounded, cannot believe Biden's absence of leadership as it comes to immigration. Ashley Moody talking about what's happening right now in America, coming to America by the tens of thousands. 60,000 from Haiti are coming our way right now. 25 Republican governors are taking action today. But will anything work if the president doesn't cash in? Number two. If this isn't a deliberate attempt to chill parents from showing up at school board meetings for their elected school boards, I don't know what is. I mean, I'm not aware of anything like this in American history. You're using the FBI to intervene in school board meetings. That's extraordinary. Upset about CRT? Well, the DOJ is upset with you and calling for the FBI to get involved. We'll explain. Number one. President Biden has two bills that he's pushing. The, uh, the fake infrastructure bill, which will spend $400 billion that we don't have, and the spending orgy reconciliation bill. Mice die in mousetraps because they think the cheese is free. 
Uh, this bill's not free. It'll cost everybody. It will. No kidding. Biden hits the road and gets turbulence as he tries to explain the rationale behind the multi-trillion dollar one-party deal, spending spree, if you will. Republicans are standing in his way on the debt ceiling, he claims. We'll talk about it. Uh, joining us now, Governor Susana Martinez. Uh, Governor, welcome back. Thank you, Brian. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Yeah, no problem. It's uh, our pleasure. First off, have you ever heard or seen for yourself the border so bad? I have not, Brian. And I have lived on the border my entire life or been governor of a border state. I lived in El Paso, Texas for 23 years. I lived uh, as a prosecutor for 25 years, right on the border, prosecuting cases, and then I was the governor of a border state. And never in my life have I ever seen such absolute and total incompetence. Um, there is a dereliction of duty by the president and the vice president to the people of the United States. Um, it is unfathomable what is happening. And if COVID restrictions are li- are going to be lifted at some time in the near future. You wait and see this triple and quadruple. It is going to be horrific. And I get it where people want to go to the border. Governors want to go see how horrible it is. But it's time to start acting. These states need to start protecting themselves. The president and the vice president are doing nothing for the United States. And if people think they're going to stay on in border cities, They're hugely mistaken. They are going to go to your town in little town America all over the United States, and they are going to go to your schools. They're going to take up your health care where we have limited health care for even American citizens, our veterans. It is unfathomable. It is time for our state governors to start acting on their own and making sure their people are safe. Governor, but how? Uh, I mean, gov- we have the governor of Texas saying, well, building a wall, of fence, it's not really going up quick enough. And he's got his own Texas patrol out there. He said he's going to jail people to come in across, but now it's costing the state money and they're running out of jail space. Twenty five governors getting together today. What's what's feasible? I know I understand the anger and I think you're 100 percent right. But what's feasible without buying from the White House? You know, they need to start just making sure that they're blocking that um, the river. I understand that you know they're not militarized by the federal government, but the National Guard in New Mexico, where I am from, they don't even have the National Guard on the border helping Border Patrol. They think that it's not necessary, even though we've gone up by 400 percent of the number of illegal immigrants crossing our border. And so it is the National Guard, their troopers, they can be out there. And I'm sorry, but start arresting people, start sharing their jails making sure that things are happening. If they expect transparency, Mm -hmm. they need to stop thinking that they can beg for that transparency. It's not going to happen. So start acting in a way that law enforcement is going to start taking over the responsibilities of President Biden, because obviously he ignores federal law. He ignores the United States Supreme Court. He ignores court orders. So if he can ignore all of those orders and, and do nothing for the people, I say our state governors start to act in a way to enforce um, their security of their people in their states and, frankly, the rest of the United States by doing so and holding them back like they did where they had cars blocking at a bridge. I mean, they have got to – when you remove people off of border checkpoints, you are letting fentanyl come through like nobody's business. 
and Americans are dying. Uh, we're talking to Governor, Governor Martinez, the 31st governor of New Mexico. Governor, for the longest time, uh, if you crack down on the border, if you're saying build that wall, people say, well, that's going to hurt your Hispanic vote. It's an insult to the Hispanic community. Why didn't it hurt? Why did President Trump not only not get hurt by it in most cases, but he increased his Hispanic support? What, what do you know as a Hispanic Look, not, governor? Look, we're not any different than anybody else. We don't think a certain way just because we're Hispanic. We think the very same way as any other person that lives in the United States and is an American citizen or is here legally. We want our community safe. We want to be able to go to the hospital and be taken care of and not be in line for hours and hours and hours because people who are here illegally are getting free services in front of us. Our schools are going to be overwhelmed. We're no different than anybody else who wants to be safe in our communities, when we go to the grocery store, when we go to the movies, wherever it may be. We're no different. Quit separating us as though, you know, because they're coming to the Mexican border, we actually think different. Haitians aren't from Mexico. (laughs) Haitians have been living in actually other parts of the country of the world. And then coming here, they left Haiti some time ago. A lot of them did. And what are we doing? We open the doors and say, oh, border closed, and then here you go, into the rest of the country. They're going to be everywhere, Oklahoma, Kansas, Arkansas, Georgia, California, Florida, everywhere. I so want you to yeah. just a I, I hear you. Or a Hispanic and I did not know uh, the border crossings, illegal border crossings up 400 percent in New Mexico. We never hear that. We don't actually hear much from Arizona where if I'm Senator Kelly, I, if I want to get my another uh, a full six years, I speak up for the people of Arizona who are being overwhelmed as well. But he doesn't. I don't know why. But I want you to hear from Congressman Cuellar, who cares more about uh, his his district than he does his party. And I appreciate that. Listen. We're in the middle of the pandemic. We can't even let legal visa holders from Mexico or Canada come in, but they're letting all these undocumented people come in during the middle of a pandemic. So it doesn't make any sense to them, and they're trying to get rid of Title 42, which would no longer allow them to send single men out immediately who go to cross to get amnesty. Exactly. And, and he is so right. I mean, this is not a Republican or a Democrat issue, but they certainly want to make it that way. They want to divide this country. And he is absolutely right. Now, they get rid of Title 42. The wave of the world is going to come to our border. And there better be some state preparation and plans because Biden and Harris are failing us. I mean, frankly, it is a dereliction of duty to the American people, and they have no business running this country. So, Zero business running this country into the ground. So I want you to hear something really offensive, and it's something that should offend every taxpayer in our country when it comes to building the wall. Cut 20. We're paying contractors uh, for a while. It was almost $5 million a day between DOD and DHS. To not. To work. not build the border wall. There's so wait, wait, wait. $5 million a day to not build the wall. To not build a wall. Even though they have all the stuff, they have... There are stacks and stacks of border wall uh, panels. There's hundreds of miles of fiber optic cabling. Uh, there's hundreds of, bo- of cameras that were being installed with that uh, that are just sitting. There's no action being taken. I mean, think about that. That's pure politics. Absolutely it is. And the American people need to understand it's our money 
I know. It is the taxpayers who pay money, and we're paying them to not do something. Well, at the same time, I'm paying more at the pump to fill my car with gasoline. I'm paying more at the grocery store. I'm paying more at the hardware store. I mean, everyone in the United States is paying more money because of inflation. And then we're turning around and giving away $5 million not to secure our country. Homeland security and border security are hand in hand. And there I I fear that something horrific is going to happen in this country because of the policies of the Biden-Harris administration. And to be handing over $5 million a day to not do something, I mean, that is pure BS. And, And we have got to stand up as Americans and take our country back. Governor, what's next for you? You know, I don't know. I, I love I love good policy. I, I, and I love good policy for both Democrats, Republicans, and independents, for all of us. Um, and, and that is something that my, where my passion is. I don't know that I can ever stay away from it. Um, at this point, I am um, I'm trying to keep the stories alive and making sure that American people are aware that, you know, you, we can beg for transparency, but uh, we as people have been in office, understand what's happening. We need to get these messages out. And that's where I'm focused on really right now is getting messages out, making sure people know the truth. Because if we rely on the administration, forget it. Quit begging for it. We're not getting it. So let's get it ourselves another way and share it with the American people. Hey, Governor, what's your reflection on Hispanic Week in America? You know, I, 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 I am a proud American of Mexican descent. And as a proud American Mexican descent and a female, I really am proud of the fact that I broke a glass ceiling, became the first female Hispanic governor in the United States. However, I came with much more. Um, I came with a lot of knowledge and, and, and ideas for policies that was effective for Democrats, independents, and Republicans in Gotcha. Uh, well, gov- can see that this can be done. I hear you. Uh, Governor Susana Martinez, thanks for your perspective. And I just wish you were still in charge. New Mexico would be better off, clearly. Uh, thanks so much for joining us. All right. Uh, when we come back, Martha McCallum comes in studio. She's set to host her show at 3. And we're going to be covering all this uh, along with the breaking news. You listen to The Brian Kilmeade Show. Don't move. Newsmakers and newsbreakers. Hear it first, only on the Brian Kilmeade Show. The Living the Bream is a podcast hosted by Fox News Channel's Shannon Bream, sharing inspirational stories, personal anecdotes, and an insider's perspective on actions and rulings from the high court. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. America's listening to Fox News. Fast as three hours in radio. You're with Brian Kilmeade on the second major topic of mm-hmm. concern of Facebook, which is censorship. Based on what you've seen, are you, are you concerned about political censorship at, at Facebook and in big tech? I believe you cannot have a system that uh, has as big an impact on society as Facebook does today with as little transparency as it does. We don't want computers deciding what we focus on. We should have software that is human-scaled, where humans have conversations together, not computers facilitating who we get to hear from. Uh, Frances Hogan, uh, she is the whistleblower that was featured on 60 Minutes that came to Capitol Hill over the next couple of days. 
Uh, she's going to be with us shortly. I was late for my train. I apologize. <laughs> um, with me right now is Martha McCallum. She did not want to wait for introduction. Host of The Story. Uh, and welcome back, Martha. Hi, Brian. And Great good to, to see you. you. Happy Wednesday. Happy well, hump day. We always see each other on We on do. Uh, and I'm, we're thing. honored. And we're also on Fox <laughs> Nation getting set to host your th- show at 3. Hi there. So, uh, Martha, did, how much of the Facebook hearings did you see, did you use in your show yesterday? Um, I watched uh, as much of it as I could yesterday. I thought it, I thought it was really fascinating. And one of the things that we played on our show was the moment in the tobacco hearings back in 1994 when each of the, you know, a young uh, Senator Ron Wyden asked each of the heads of the tobacco companies, you know, we understand that you believe that nicotine is not uh, addictive. Can you please, for the record, answer that question? And all the way down the line, they raise their hand. Nicotine is not addictive. Nicotine is not addictive. Yeah, nicotine yeah. is not addictive because I have always believed. I wrote a, I wrote an essay about this, I think, probably seven or eight years ago. Cigarettes are social media. Cigarettes are cell phones, I think I called it at the time. Um, because the problem is that in life, right, you, you get awkward. You need something to do with your hands. People used to always smoke in those moments, right, on elevators, anywhere. Yeah. Now, now in those same moments when people have that pause instead of just, like, being reflective and staring up at the sky or something, we all have to look at something so everyone looks at these, right, right? These, these idiot machines. So, you know, I, I think that the infiltration into society and the damage that it has done is so clear, but I believe that, like smoking, it's going to take parents and families and just individual choice to decide that we want to back away from this stuff. I don't think Facebook will ever reform. I think it's great that she came out and spoke as she did, that she wants to be a whistleblower and a pioneer in this. But there is so much money on Capitol Hill coming from these companies. And that is the reason that we've been hearing people screaming about this from the rafters and you know talking about how much it upsets them and how terrible it is and doing Zippo. Here's what uh, she went on to say about who's responsible. Cut 27. Mark holds a very unique role in um, the tech industry in that he holds uh, over 55% of all the voting shares for Facebook. Um, There are no similarly powerful companies that are as uh, unilaterally controlled. Um, And in in the end, the buck stops with Mark. There's no one currently holding Mark accountable but himself. Really? Do you believe that? Do you believe that he is that hands-on? I don't know. I mean, he's evidently a genius. But he did have a chance to answer back and qualify it, and this is not up to the Well, number one, I appreciate a whistleblower, but I'm a little torn. She's in there, leaves in May with all this information. I mean, my goodness. I mean, that's that's huge. I mean, uh, I guess she felt compelled to do it, but I also am a little worried about the focus on January 6th, for example, on Sunday with 60 Minutes. I look at her background, and she's heavily into Democratic causes, and there's a belief out there that Republicans should watch themselves a little bit when it comes to her because, in fact, I'll read you what uh, Devin Nunes says. Uh, he's, he was worrying about where she's coming, uh, where she's coming from. And now I have that one. This, um, it's got to, here it is. Almost there. Oh, you have them? Oh, cut 36. I think Republicans should be very careful here. If anything, we ought to be investigating Zuckerberg for the $350 million that he invested into so-called nonprofit groups that got involved in our election. And I think that's where the focus should be. That's what every single member of Congress should be asking on an everyday basis, not 
falling into some trap of uh, figuring out some scam where we're going to have a bureaucracy of people that are going to just do good things, which i.e. means going to censor conservatives. This is a legitimate worry? You know, I just look, I come at it from a different perspective. She has every right to do what she did, whether that would be someone else's choice to gather those documents and to leave the company and be a whistleblower. Um, she has every right to do that. So, you, you know, I, I come at it from a different perspective. It needs to right. be worked on from the outside. Martha will be back more in a moment. It's the Hammer Time Podcast. Fox News Channel's Bill Hammer takes you one-on-one with engaging personalities covering the critical issues of the day. Find Hammer Time now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. America's listening to Fox News. The talk show that's getting you talking. You're with Brian Kilmeade. We also saw... Um, active participation of, uh, say, the Iran government doing espionage on other um, state actors. Um, so this is definitely a thing that is happening, and I believe Facebook's consistent understaffing of the counter-espionage, information operations, and counterterrorism teams is a national security issue, and I'm speaking to other parts of Congress about that. So you are saying, in essence, that the, the, the platform, whether Facebook knows it or not, is being utilized by some of our adversaries in a way that helps yeah push and promote their interests at the expense of America's? Yes, Facebook's so very aware that this is happening on the platform. So we're just looking at a bunch of things right now. That was uh, more from the testimony yesterday on Facebook and the, the terror threat. We're also looking at Joe Manchin, who just wrapped up his remarks. Martha McCallum's here. She's going to be hosting her show, The Story, at 3 o'clock. So, uh, Martha, as we listen to Joe Manchin come out and basically say, uh, I'm not moving off my number right now, you know my number, what else did he said? He said, uh, when it comes to taking care of kids, I'm for that, which means maybe he's open to the pre, uh, free preschool for all. Uh, but he also said he is for a free market society. And he believes this whole social spending, if I get to paraphrase, is not something he's going to sign on for, which is really what's in this reconciliation bill. Yeah. I, I mean, it's remarkable that saying that is a is unique news. voice. Um, but, yes, yeah, Senator Manchin doubled down on what he said last week, which was, you know, I don't believe in a socialized society, essentially. I believe in a rewarding society. Um, and this this is a real, this is the one aspect of this bill that I think isn't talked about enough. It's sort of a leveler. It wants to give everybody the same exact benefits, right? Regardless of whether you make $800,000 a year or $40,000 a year, it wants to shower you with the same benefits it's, so there's this equalizer so the the ability to move up in society is under is fundamentally changed so this is you know this is a who are we as a nation question and you look back at bill clinton who pushed for work to welfare programs so that you could receive welfare but you had to prove that you were looking for a job and then that you would transition and yeah a democrat um look at means testing this is a dirty phrase now means testing the suggestion that in order for the government to give you money you have to prove that you, you need it and if you don't need it you're not going to get the check you're not going to get the free laptop you're not going to get the um the break on your you know energy uh on your, on your gas car on your energy car um you know, so so I mean, it's a great equalizing effort uh, on the part of this bill, and I think the fact that Manchin, as I said, stands out as as unique in saying that he thinks people should, you know, if we have to, there's a safety net. 
great. We want that safety net to be there. We're Americans. We want to take care of people who've fallen through the cracks. Absolutely, 100%. But we also want to give people incentives to move up. And also today, the news happened during this show is student loan forgiveness. All right, student loan forgiveness. I wish I didn't have to pay back my student loan, but I was understood I would. I actually understand that maybe some people are duped, and I get it, into getting two or three loans, a parent loan, a student loan, and you settle with debt when you get out. I understand that. That should be a discussion. But just to forgive loans, what about the 33-year-old listening to us right now? They just paid off him or her loan. What about the person who says, well, I can't get to work if I don't use my car, and I have a car loan. Yeah. So shouldn't there be some some program for me because I'm having trouble paying off my car loan? These are the responsibilities that come with being an adult in a capitalist society. And like I said, we do have measures for people who fall through the cracks, and we do want to protect them. We want to give them that hand out so that they can get a hand up. And, um, you know, these, these are just very basic American ideas that used to be shared by both parties. And there's, there's a real threat to that right now. And, um, you know, if that's the country we want to be, do you want to be the U.K.? Do you want to be France? Do you want to be sort of have a, you know, lesser level of, uh, of health care, a lesser, lesser level of a lot of things? Um, you know, that, that's the question people are faced with right now. And what happens is you get so much taken out of your paycheck, it disincentivizes people from opening up another business. Why do I need to open up another restaurant? Why? Because uh, I'm dealing with so many regulations. I'm dealing with so much insurance costs. I'm paying so much in taxes in state and local. I don't know if it's worth the hassle. Well, what's the big deal if you don't open another restaurant? Well, you don't hire 40 more people. And if you think it's just that restaurant, that's the mentality all around. Why do I need to do this? Especially the, you know, if you... Smart people have money. Now you want to take more of that money away. Those smart people are going to find a way to put their money in a place that's not going to be taken away because they got it not to give it away uh, to the government, so to speak. Senator John Kennedy said this. When someone gives you $3.5 trillion, there's going to be pay for us, but no one talks about that. Cut six. President Biden has two bills that he's pushing. The, uh, the fake infrastructure bill, which will spend $400 billion that we don't have. And the bill to which you referred, the uh, the spending orgy reconciliation bill, which, by the way, President Biden says is free. Uh, I would remind you that uh, mice mice die in mouse traps because they think the cheese is free. Uh, this bill's not free; it'll cost everybody. Uh, the bill would have uh, four trillion dollars worth of new spending, two trillion dollars worth of new taxes, two trillion dollars worth of new debt. Debt. Uh, And that's no one's talking about that. But also no one made Joe Manson's argument that he just made that I do not want to be a society. We have to be a free society that is not, uh, you know, that it doesn't it's not uh, socialism, essentially. So uh, getting into the play by play negotiations, evidently in a Zoom call, uh, President Biden got Jay Powell to say, hey, listen, I think I can get Manchin up to one point nine to two point two. What about you? She's like, I'm at two point five to two point nine. She's heads the Congressional Black Caucus. There's no indications that. Joe Manchin would go about get up to 2.2. I don't even know if 1.9 is possible. We know we don't need any of it. We have a bipartisan bill, period. So 1.9 is twice what we paid to bail us out in 2008. We've already spent $5 trillion in the last year on COVID relief. Because we were asked not to work. $5 trillion. 
on COVID relief. It, it is, it's mind-boggling. I feel like we've become desensitized to the amount of money this is, and it all comes out of your pocket. It right. comes out of Americans' pockets. So it's a question. Do you want to keep your money and control what you do with your life and decide if you want to invest in your business and grow your business, or do you want to give it to the government and let them distribute it all across the country for child care and elder care and everything else? Do you want control over it, or do you want the government to have control over it? That's the question. It is. And Biden said uh, anyone who doesn't back his multimillion-dollar infrastructure bill is complicit in America's decline. That'll bring us together, right? Yeah. Uh, and by the way, isn't it interesting that he goes to Michigan, and he's greeted by Trump signs, uh, by de- divisive terms, uh, one of which is Bill back broke, go, sleep, go home, sleepy Joe, and no Biden. This is what he would have experienced if he actually campaigned. But because of the pandemic, he didn't. So to go into these purple states, these contested states in these areas, there's a lot of people that going to give him a sobriety check when it's really like to be out there because he won this presidency without any of the friction that goes with trying to win a presidency. He actually got the nomination because it was handed to him. He didn't win it in New Hampshire and Iowa or Nevada. This guy was handed it to South Carolina by James Clyburn and then went back into the basement using the pandemic as an excuse. Yeah, I I think what happened in Michigan is really interesting. And I always wonder when politicians are driving into a a situation, right, they're going to speak somewhere and there's protesters on both sides of the street like that. Do they shut it out? Do they just think, oh, they're just, you know, Trump people and this doesn't apply to me. This isn't something I have to worry about. Uh, Somebody, you know, encourage them to turn out or do they absorb it a little bit? Do they say, hmm. This is interesting. I'm in Michigan. This is Alyssa Slotkin's district. Um, she was all. She also ran as a moderate. She's also going to be under some pressure in this next election. Should I open up and listen to this and and let it affect my my thinking, or do I shut it out and pretend that it's not there? Um, you know, I, I would suggest. You know, it also is interesting to me. You, you look back at the Trump presidency, and the, when people looked back, did you know it should have done a bipartisan infrastructure deal right out of the gate, right? It, it instead they did the Muslim ban as it was referred to, right? Should have done infrastructure out of the gate, bipartisan, get people on board. There's only a short moment when you're a new president for that to happen. If this president had had that strength to say, no, 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 back down. We're doing this first. We're going to do this infrastructure deal. I know people all across America are in favor of it. Appeal to America on that. Say, because he does, he always talks about the bridges and the airports and the roads and everything, but that's just a small small sliver of what's going on. He got it in the Senate. Absolutely. And at that point, he should have said, no, I'm not doing both of this together. We're going to go back to this and we're going to, we're going to get it later and we're going to see what we can get, but we're going to accomplish something on this bill that has been passed by the Senate. But he chose not to. And we'll see what, what the ramifications are. I'm going to tell you exactly what he said when he looked at those signs. So reportedly, he said, it makes me smile. I got more pumped up, he said to the protesters, speaking to a small group of union members, because he always speaks to small groups. I'm not sure if why that is. Biden pitched his infrastructure plan as nonpartisan. He went on to say, these bills are not about left or right or moderate versus progressive or anything that pits America against America. To suppose these investments to be complicit in America's decline, those who oppose it are complicit in America's decline. Of course it's bipartisan, nonpartisan. This is all about Democrats. They didn't even ask for Republican votes. This is the definition. Reconciliation is the definition of one party. So Mike, Mark Thiessen, we're mutual fans, said this. 
What kind of president goes to Capitol Hill and urges members of his own party not to vote for one of his top legislative priorities? The answer, the same president who threatened to veto his own bill. On Friday, Biden, uh, Biden broke his word. Instead of calling up House progressives who had taken the infrastructure deal hostage, he effectively gave them his blessing to hold up the legislation until there was a deal on separate multi-trillion dollar reconciliation bill. That fact is lost. Uh, yeah. What about the 19 Republicans? How do they feel? They should feel, even though they knew this, there could be a linkage, they never thought in the end he'd walk away from a win. But they must feel like total schlubs right now. Yeah. And you wonder what he says to his advisors, uh, his chief of staff, others who encouraged him to embrace the progressives in this fight and to go for the whole enchilada on this. Um He's he's in a very tough spot. This presidency has a long way to go, um, and we see ups and downs uh, all through the course of, of the history of events. But there are some things here that I think are going to have some pretty long tentacles, long-lasting tentacles, including this this deal and the concept of what America is. You know, he talks about competition, talks about capitalism, but then pushes for a very different kind of vote. And I think that people um, people are trying to figure out who, who he is. Corporate rate goes up. Top rate goes up. Capital gains goes up. And now everybody listening, if you have $600 in your account, Janet Yellen like to know how you got it, where you got it, where you got it from here. They're giving $75 billion to uh, maybe even more to the IRS to ruin your life. Do you understand? We're not going to get over this. This is going to be almost impossible to unwind. Or they'll underfund programs and in three years ask you to renew community colleges, preschools, school lunches, and uh, elder care. And they'll say, oh, if you don't do that, Republicans, you don't like old people or you don't like children. That's going to be the rhetoric and no one's going to have the political muscle or courage to stand up to it. Yeah, I mean – not only that, you, you, this idea that throwing more money at you know early child programs is genuinely lifts young children and helps them to do better is something that has not been proven by studies. There was a Hoover study that showed that um, there there was not a long lasting impact beyond third grade of having had Preschool. early child education. So you know, I, I mean, I just throw that out there as something to think about because I think there is this idea that if you throw money at situations in education, you're going to make them better. And I would just mention also that a lot of inner cities have a much higher per child expenditure. Detroit, Newark, New Jersey, $17,000 per student, right? Other areas where the school systems are more successful are like around 10, 11, 12. So, so money is not always the answer to improving the lives of our children, improving their education, which we all want. Right. We all want them to succeed. Um, and we all want them to have what they need to do that. But you have to this this idea that money is and is investment. We're going to invest, mm-hmm. right? And we're going to be better than China, better than France, better right. than the UK if we just throw more money at the problem. Big question marks there. Right. Uh, can I ask you a personal question? Sure. Did you go to preschool? I went to. I did go to preschool. I guess I started. Uh, I had a year of preschool. I did not, and I've never caught up. <laughs> uh, it's been, it's been. I've been on a treadmill. I just can't catch. I can't catch the car. You know, I mean, any preschool, right? If you want to have free preschool, you have to, you have to just make sure it's, it's a good Thank program, you. Yeah, right? You have to warehouse. make sure it's a good program. Um, and you know, we already have problem finding enough good teachers in this country, and we're not doing a great job with the t- with the K through twelve programs that we have already. So we're going to make them bigger and stretch them across a longer period. I, I, I just don't know if it's, if it's um, going to be 
productive. And I don't know anybody in community college who says, I wish I could go, but I can't afford it because there's so many programs and aid packages into affordable schools. That's what they're meant for. I, if he's addressing an issue and you don't want to means test free community college, I have no patience for you. Uh, it's our money. It's not like he's going, he's been extended because of it. Uh, Martha McCallum's here. When we come back, we'll get an exclusive preview into her show. At least that's what she promised. Back in a moment. Educating, entertaining, enlightening. You're with Brian Kilmeade. He's so busy, he'll make your head spin. It's Brian Kilmeade. He asked me, he said, what's the situation? And I explained exactly, uh, he, was, he had not been aware of that. He literally had not been aware of what had transpired. And I don't want to go into the details of it, but suffice it to say that, uh, that the president, uh, uh, my president, is very committed to um, uh, strengthening the relationship. John Kerry on French television trying to tell everyone, don't worry, don't blame the president. No one told him about selling nuclear subs to Australia, undermining the French sale. Martha McCallum here. Is that helpful? John Kerry going to France saying the president is that detached? No, it's not. What's he doing then? It's not helpful at all. I mean, this thing is such a weird mess, and it smacks of sort of like what people would have said. You know, I think if this was happening in President Trump's administration, he'd be like, that's what happens when you do America first, right? America, this is an America first policy. This is, we don't care about France, right? Um, Get your best deal, Australia and UK, and we'll have our own coordination on this nuclear sub deal and left our oldest ally, you know, sort of floating in the breeze on this deal. They should have absolutely given them a heads up, which they have recognized now. Um, You know, they pulled our ambassador to the United States, the French ambassador to the United States for the first time in history. Right. That's a big deal. I thought so. That's a big deal. He's back. He's back. But it's a, it's, it's a move that is, you know, is very strong in its meaning in the diplomatic uh, world in Washington, D.C. So this is just such a weird screw up. And I, it feels like, you know, we were supposed to see all these relationships mended. And remember when he went to the G7, President Biden said, you know, everyone's asking me, is America back? And I'm saying, yeah, man, you know, America is back. We are back. We are buddies. We're in the circle again. We are all together. Right. And everyone was elated, you know. I'm paraphrasing there a bit, but um, I don't think he said man, but. What does he always he say? He always says, man. Says come man on, man. Come on, man. Um, come on, man. America's back. So, oh, that whole thing is not going very well. So China warns us yesterday that World War III could be triggered at any time after it sent dozens of warplanes into Taiwan. But he's warning us because they send warplanes into Taiwan. Now, the question is, Robert O'Brien uh, outlined what we need to do to give Taiwan uh, missile systems that would be able to defend themselves. The question is, Robert O'Brien knows it. may put it in the Wall Street Journal. This administration owes it. Do they do it? Number one, China hasn't had a fight since 1970s. Didn't go well against Vietnam, a quick border skirmish. Are they going to go and take out Taiwan? They evidently will. The, the strategy is they take an island, take an island, take an island until right. they get to the big island. Kind of like World War II. Yeah. A little kinda, by little. Kind of that philosophy, Sudetenland. Right? Um, um, it, it's, you know, I mean, it's interesting that just going back to the sub thing for a moment, because I think it ties in. Macron wants to strengthen Europe's defenses, Right. He that's that's the whole program. Like he he wants the EU to get together and yes. have a stronger defense, right? 
missile systems where where we need them against Russia. And then you look to China as obviously this enormous threat. Taiwan, the leadership in Taiwan has been saying for a long time that they think that this is imminent and about to happen. A couple of guests on uh, your show, the story. So we have John Kennedy coming up this afternoon. Uh, we're going to talk to him about the president and the debt limit, which could happen during our hour, and also the lawyer for uh, Colonel Scheller. From the Fox News Podcasts Network, in these ever-changing times, you can rely on Fox News for hourly updates for the very latest news and information on your time. Listen and download now at foxnewspodcast.com or wherever you get your favorite podcasts. Listen to the show ad-free on Fox News Podcast Plus, on Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music with your Prime membership, or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.